The following podcast contains mature language and discussions that are not suitable for younger audiences. The opinions voiced in this podcast are our own. We are not experts on the topic we present, but have conducted our own research. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Strange and Undecided podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett, joined as always by my co-host. I'm Patrick. Welcome. Welcome, people. We have a good one today. Yeah, we do. I believe this is your favorite topic to talk about. This is my favorite topic, UFOs, baby. All right, let's begin. Let's do it. In 1967, during the May long weekend, an amateur prospector from River Heights, Winnipeg, named Stefan Michalak, ventured into Whiteshell Provincial Park to search for quartz and silver at Falcon Lake. After finding a spot to begin prospecting, he was interrupted by two flying objects that glowed red. One of these objects landed in front of him. Stefan observed the object and eventually got closer. Upon returning home, his family saw him fall ill and took him to the hospital where doctors and nurses were shocked by his story, but even more shocked by what they saw in his body. What happened to Stefan Michalak? Did he see a UFO or was this an elaborate hoax? It's gotta be spicy. Just a little bit. So Stefan Michalak was born August 7th, 1916 in Poland. When he was old enough, he decided to join the Polish army and would commit to training that would eventually grant him the rank of junior officer. This occurred during the outbreak of the Second World War. For those who don't know, the Nazis' blitzkrieg attacks were used across Europe where they practically slammed through countries in a very short amount of time. With the defeat of the Polish army by the Nazis, Stefan joined the Polish Home Army, which was a resistance group, and continued to fight, earning the respect of his peers. Unfortunately, he was captured by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp called Gross Rosen. During his time at the concentration camp, he witnessed the worst atrocities committed by the Nazis towards other humans. Of the roughly 125,000 people held inside Gross Rosen, about 40,000 of them were killed. Gross Rosen was liberated by the U.S. Army in 1945, where Stefan was freed, and he worked as a translator for them and assisted in the liberation of other concentration camps. However, Stefan wanted a new life. According to his obituary that was published on October 30th, 1999 in the Winnipeg Free Press, quote, Stefan immigrated to Canada via the Allied Occupation Forces in Germany. He settled in Saskatchewan and, while working on a family farm as a hired hand, began a 10-year struggle to bring his wife, daughter, and son to Canada from Poland. In 1957, he was reunited with his wife and family, and in 1958, a second son was born into the family. Subsequently, he and his family moved to Winnipeg, where he worked as an industrial mechanic and, before his retirement, as a millwright on hydroelectric projects in Manitoba's north. Having severed his ties with his homeland, Stefan embraced his new country and was, until the last, a proud Canadian citizen. Stefan developed a love of nature and geology. This passion led him to be an amateur prospector. A prospector, for those of you who don't know, is someone who searches for mineral deposits, usually gold or silver, within the earth through drilling or excavating. 
In Stefan's case, he used a pickaxe. It was a way for him to feel at peace after what he went through during World War II. And he really didn't care if he found anything. Stefan would venture into the wilderness around Falcon Lake, which is about 150 kilometers east of Winnipeg in Whiteshell Provincial Park, and prospect for quartz and silver. He knew for a fact that there was quartz veins that ran through the Precambrian portions of the Canadian Shield, and silver as well was said to be tucked away in the hillsides in the forests surrounding Falcon Lake. As this was a regular occurrence, he staked claims in the Falcon Lake area and set out during the Maylong weekend in 1967 to explore the area more. He said goodbye to his family and set out on May 19th for Falcon Lake. He took a bus from his town of River Heights to Falcon Lake and got off as close as he could, which was a highway stop. When he arrived, he got a room at the closest hotel called the Falcon Motor Hotel and settled in for the night. The next day, May 20th, 1967, Stefan got up early to pack everything he needed for the day and left the motel around 5.30 a.m. He crossed over the highway that ran in front of the motel and ventured into the forest in the direction of Falcon Lake using his compass. Several hours passed as he made his way through the forest when he eventually came upon a clearing and could see Falcon Lake in the distance. Running under his feet was a suitable area for prospecting, so he set up his gear, which consisted of welding gloves, welding goggles, and his pickaxe, and began chipping away. Some time had passed, and unfortunately, Stefan hadn't struck gold and decided to take a break to eat and enjoy the peaceful scenery. So I've actually got a picture here on the side. Uh, unfortunately, for those listening, you won't be able to see this, but this is just for Pat's visual sake. What do we got here? So those are the welding goggles that he wore. That is old school. Yeah, that's him in the picture too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it was just a hobby, right? And he's he's pretty loaded up with all the right stuff, right? Yeah, he was very prepared. Okay. After he finished his lunch, he put his gear back on and went back to work. A little while later, he was interrupted by a noise that he heard over top of him chipping at the rocks coming from the direction of the lake. He could see geese honking, and they looked as if something had startled them. When he looked up to observe the area further, he saw two cigar-shaped objects with humps in the middle emitting a reddish glow floating about 150 feet away from him. Stefan described them as slow-moving objects about 30 to 40 feet wide and about 15 feet tall, but what was strange was that they were emitting no noise. Stefan initially assumed that these were military experimental crafts and watched as one of the crafts slowly descended towards him, taking on a more disc-like shape and landed on the rocky platform. And keep in mind, this guy's seen action in the war, so it's not like he's easily startled, right? Yeah, he immediately, from what I read, he did not consider this or even have the thought cross his mind that this could be extraterrestrial he strictly was like, this is a military craft. They're running some uh, experiments out here. Because keep in mind, too, Falcon Lake is kind of in the middle of nowhere. But it's also fairly close to the border with the states. So he thought that maybe Americans or Canadians were running military like test runs, basically, out in this area. Yeah. I wonder uh, if at this point, if he even knew what a UFO was. Probably, like, I would did say people no. talk about this stuff back then? 
I don't think so. It's pretty much a big no-no. You immediately get considered crazy, at least from my um, understanding of that anyways. Yeah. The other craft hovered in the air for a few minutes longer before changing to an orangey color and taking off. The craft that landed emitted a strange purple light from within that was only visible through small holes in the sides of the craft. The light was so bright, Stefan had to put his welding goggles back on so he could see the craft without being blinded. Whoa. Stefan waited for someone to exit the craft, but nobody came out. So he ended up sitting back and took time to sketch the craft over the next half hour. No way, we get a sketch? We get a sketch of the craft, so I'm just showing that to Pat here. Whoa, this guy was an artist. When I did a little bit of research in the background on Stefan, it said that he loved to sketch as well, and he was a very art-minded individual. Yeah, so he just did this on the spot, like looking at this thing? From what I've seen in the articles and the data that I've been looking at, he brought a sketch pad with him pretty much anytime he went prospecting, and he liked to draw scenery and draw what he saw, any kind of beautiful moment. And that brought him a lot of peace. But yeah, he ended up drawing the the craft here, which you can see what looks to be kind of some sort of door and then some panels on the one side. Yeah, this looks like a typical saucer type UFO. Kind of like the stereotypical thing you think of when you think UFO. That's what this looks like. Yeah, pretty much. All these pictures that I'll be showing Pat are going to be available online. So you can access them. I'll include the links in the show notes uh, so you can view them for yourself. And you know what? Uh, assuming like he didn't know anything about UFOs, like it makes him more legitimized. Yeah, like he wasn't like be into be because the... he didn't have a pre preconceived notion of what we think of as UFOs, right? Like this was his first hand account. Probably never seen a sketch of these. Probably he's never heard of this before. Yep, I absolutely agree with you. Stefan then noticed a door had slid open on the side of the craft and waited for somebody to come out, but they didn't. Stefan decided to begin approaching the craft to see if he could help whoever was in it because he was a mechanic. So he thought if they made, might have had a malfunction while in flight, that they landed to make repairs. And since he was a mechanic, he might be able to offer some help just being a, a good guy. What a friendly guy. He reminds me so much of my great uncle who... Uh... Lots of similar similarities to uh, our character here. My my family's from Poland, so my great uncle was a uh, an immigrant here, which uh, my family followed after. So he was kind of like the first one here. He was like a handyman. He was known around the community as like just helping everybody, like just a good guy. So I I I understand stepping here. As he got closer, he described feeling warm air coming from the craft the smell of sulfur, and he could hear the whirring of a motor and hissing of air similar to exhaust. Okay, now we have some sound, whereas before it was silent. Yeah, so they've landed. I don't know, he also described the craft actually changed shape as well. Like there was cigar shape before, and then as it was landing, it kind of morphed a little bit. Yeah. And changed color as well. Which I don't, you don't really hear much about that specifically. So I found that to be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. He could hear muffled voices talking from the open door. He could tell there were two different voices coming from inside as one voice was lower in pitch and the other higher. And they both sounded human. 
He was far enough away, though, that he could not discern what they were saying. He decided to yell at the craft in English. The voices ceased immediately, and he received no response. He tried again in Polish, followed by Russian and German, with no response again. He tried looking on the outside of the craft for an identifying mark or insignia, finding none. This guy had no fear. Nope. Just walking up to this thing. Greetings, comrades. Yeah. (laughs) As he continued to get closer, he noticed that there were no seams anywhere on the surface of the craft and said that the metal appeared to be smooth and resembled colored glass. Stefan was now standing in front of the door looking inside of the craft, but it was still difficult for him to see anything because the lights were so bright. He did, however, observe what he thought was a panel at the back of the craft with flashing lights and column of lights moving around inside, but he still could not see anyone. Before he could look at more, the door slid shut. Stefan decided to touch the craft with his glove, and as he did, the glove started to melt instantly. I actually have a picture of his glove. Yeah, you can see like the tips of the fingers are really dark and slightly melted. Uh-huh. By the description, I thought it was going to be a lot worse, but by his description, it didn't even burn whatsoever. It didn't light on fire. It just instantly melted. Well, good thing he had the glove on because his hand would have been not good. Exactly. He ripped the glove off in fear that he could injure himself. He then watched as the craft turned in a counterclockwise direction until a vent on the outside of the craft that had holes orientated in a grid-like pattern rotated in front of him. Stefan was then shot with a burst of air or gas from the vent that blew him back and set his clothing on fire. He tore off his clothes and stomped out the flames, and when he looked back at the craft, it somehow had taken off and shot into the clouds, disappearing out of sight. Jeez, this guy had quite the encounter. Not being able to fully comprehend what he saw, Stefan started experiencing tremendous pain in his chest and stomach. He developed a headache and felt nauseous, almost like being in a drunk state and feeling very disoriented. To me, this sounds like acute radiation sickness. That's exactly what it sounded like to me right away, and we'll get to more of that later. Stefan grabbed his things and took off into the woods to get back to his hotel room. It took him several hours of stumbling through the woods where he vomited multiple times due to his symptoms. In the afternoon around 4 p.m., Stefan stumbled into the parking lot of the Falcon Motor Hotel. A highway patrol officer witnessed him walking on the highway without a shirt and stumbling and thought he was drunk. According to the archived Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, records, the incident was reported as a man having, quote, too many wobbly pops, end quote. (laughs) Stefan asked the hotel owner to get him a doctor as he was not doing well. On that particular day, there was no doctor in town, and the closest one was about 70 kilometers away, so Stefan decided his best bet would be to travel back to Winnipeg to seek medical help. He went back to his room, phoned his wife, and told her that there had been an accident and that he was all right, but asked if she could have their son meet him at the bus terminal in Winnipeg. At 10.45 p.m., the bus pulled into the Winnipeg terminal, and Stefan got off the bus. His son then drove him directly to the, I apologize for if I'm saying this wrong, the Misericordia Misericordia Health Center and carried him inside where he was admitted to the emergency room. 
Stefan had experienced burns from the, quote, vent blast, end quote, on both his chest and stomach. And this was assumed at the time to be burns due to heat. So they actually have pictures of his actual clothing. So you can see, looks like he was wearing like a muscle shirt of some sort. But you can actually see there is a grid-like pattern on the front. And whoa, and this is Stefan himself laying in the bed. And you can see on his stomach, extending up into his chest, the grid-like pattern, the burn marks. Yeah, it's very clear. It's the perfect grid. What was most shocking was that the burns were determined not to be from a thermal source, but from a chemical source. Doctors were never able to determine what chemicals caused this, though. In fact, nobody was ever able to determine the reason for the symptoms that Stefan was experiencing. They determined that after testing, he was of sound mind. He was tested for radiation poisoning as the symptoms that he was experiencing were consistent with this, which you observed earlier. However, the tests administered all came up negative. Hmm. Quite mysterious. Stefan's symptoms of nausea, headaches, pain, diarrhea persisted, and he continued to suffer, even losing weight. So during the time afterwards, he lost about 13 pounds. His lymphocyte count dropped to near lethal levels as well. Eventually, he was referred by his doctor to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, as none of the doctors in Winnipeg could determine what happened to him. Now here, there are some differing reports. In my research, I found that after he visited the Mayo Clinic, they assessed Stefan and determined he was a, quote, fellow who's very pragmatic, very down-to-earth, pardon the pun, and does not make up stories. However, I also found another report in 1983, an interview with Manitoba UFO expert Edward Barker, who said he personally interviewed Stefan and knew him well. He said that the Mayo Clinic never sent the results of Stefan's test back to his doctor. They continued to contact Mayo Clinic with no response. After a year, Mayo Clinic finally responded and stated they knew nothing of Stefan Michalak. It's a little sketchy considering uh, your medical establishment. You should be keeping all patient records, right? Pretty much, they should. But what was interesting was, as far as Mayo Clinic could figure out, he had never been there. Stefan had documentation proving he was, in fact, admitted to Mayo Clinic and had bills of his visits, which he had to pay off. Because you go to the States, that's all paid out of pocket. Whereas here in Canada, we have free health care. Not free. It's paid with taxes. And, pe and people abuse it because they think it's free. That's true. Good point. Thank you for correcting me. What was most bizarre, as if the whole story wasn't already, was that up until Stefan's death in 1999, he continued to suffer intermittent symptoms, including the burns. So every once in a while, he would just have a resurgence of all of these symptoms, and the burns would come back, and he'd be down and out. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah, so all the way for the next, well, from 1967 until 1999. Yeah, it's a long time to suffer some mysterious illness that nobody knows about. Absolutely. Stefan came forward with his story to the Winnipeg Tribune. They published a story titled, quote, I was burned by a UFO, end quote. He also ended up making a manuscript of his experience. What's a manuscript? Like, a, is he trying to make a book or like a movie or something? Or what was his uh, goal? 
Yeah, manuscript is basically just like a collection of events, but it's handwritten versus typed or print. So this guy took the time to sit down and write everything out. This was important. Very. He he knew this was like unbelievable shit. Which I feel like is appropriate behavior considering what he claimed he went through. Oh yeah, he's like, no one's going to believe me. I need to be accurate. Stefan was subsequently questioned by the RCMP, representatives of the Royal Canadian Air Force, or RCAF, and various government agencies. Initially, many dismissed his account. However, experts and high-up government officials ended up investigating Falcon Lake in search of the area that he had described. Also assisting and showing interest in the case were various agencies, including the Department of Health, Department of National Defense, alongside the RCMP and the RCAF, American teams, including the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and the United States Air Force, as a part of the Condon Committee. The Condon Committee was, quote, the informal name of the University of Colorado UFO Project, a group funded by the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1968 at the University of Colorado to study unidentified flying objects under the direction of physicist Edward Condon. The result of its work, formerly titled Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects and known as the Condon Report, appeared in 1968. For the initial search, Stefan was still too sick to assist. He had not been able to eat solid food since the incident and was still suffering. The RCMP and the RAF used helicopters to search the area and were unsuccessful as Stefan's description was too vague. The RCMP convinced Stefan to come out and took him up in a helicopter initially and then had him help with a ground search to no avail. And from what I read, he basically didn't understand, he didn't recognize the land from that angle. So he wasn't really able to help all that much in determining where, in fact, the area was. So that's why they took him down to do a ground search in hopes that he would kind of remember his pathway there. It's nice to hear that all these agencies uh, didn't take his story lightly. No, they did like a full investigation yeah. of this. Like it was, if I'm not mistaken, one of the largest in terms of like funding and like money and resources used, one of the largest searches in all of Canada. And I think to this day, it's still pretty much the most documented and recorded event, UFO event. Yeah, I wonder what was like the, the, th the thing, like what was the, what was the single piece of evidence that got these agencies to believe them? What do you think it was? Well, it could have been the Mayo Clinic results because allegedly, according to the gentleman I talked about earlier, they never got the results back from Mayo Clinic. So maybe there was some results sent off and the government intercepted them and we're like, okay, this is something that we need to take a look at potentially. Because yeah, That would he, be a, quite the conspiracy, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I feel like that's its own rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. They ended up sending Stefan home to recover as they still hadn't found the spot, and he was not doing well. It is unclear on what day it was in my research, but eventually they did find the rock face that Stefan had described, and on it was a circular burn pattern about 15 feet in diameter in the rock as if something had been sitting on top of it and expelled an incredible amount of heat. Stefan's burnt clothing was also found along with some of his tools. The area surrounding the quote-unquote landing site was also highly radioactive. However, there was a vein of radium that ran underground 
close by that emitted some radiation. What was more shocking was the recovery of metal, determined to be very rare and heavily refined silver that had melted into the cracks of the rock, and the pieces found emitted very high levels of radioactivity. Years later, Stefan's son Stan still has one of these pieces of metal and is still radioactive. So this is a picture of it here. It's not a great thing to have lying around your house. Yeah, I was wondering that too, but I don't know, maybe he has it tucked away in a lead box somewhere. I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, this it kind of just looks like a bent piece of metal, but it doesn't look natural. So that supposedly came off the craft? Supposedly, but they found it kind of melted into the cracks of the rock in the area, and I believe they were able to recover three pieces, and this is just one of them. I was listening to a podcast. Are you familiar with Gary Nolan? Don't don't quote me on that. I think his name is Gary Nolan. He's like a professor at one of the big schools down in the States, and he has a bunch of supposed, almost like exhaust, supposedly they came off of like UFOs. You know, like cars have exhaust. Like apparently like these drops of metal came off these craft as like an exhaust. And he's got these metal bits and he's like analyzed them in the lab. And it's got like a super rare structure that can't be found naturally in like the minerals that we have on Earth. So it's very similar to this because, yeah, the silver that they found was like a super rare, I wouldn't even know if variety is the right word, but it was also like very heavily refined and not naturally occurring. So that seems very similar. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, and even like they said, we don't have the technology to refine it in like this pattern that the metals were in, wow. like the like the molecules. That's so, so interesting. So it's not of this world, potentially. Uh, who knows? Not known to us. Yeah. Stefan had endless visitors and phone calls from people interested in the event, as well as the media circus. Unfortunately, many didn't believe them, as I stated earlier, and said it was all a hoax. That the burns on his skin he experienced was simply an allergic reaction. That the symptoms stemmed from him being an alcoholic. There were also inconsistencies in his story according to the highway patrol officer and the bartender at the hotel he stayed at. Stefan claimed to not have drank any alcohol that weekend, but the bartender said he drank about five bottles of beer the night before the incident. Personally, I believe there would have had to be more than five bottles of beer to put Stefan into the state he was after the incident. But that's just my opinion. People ended up believing he made up the story to deflect attention away from his prized prospecting area that he had staked claim. Well, now you got the government there, so... It would have backfired if yeah. that was the case. Like I feel like that would bring more attention to that area specifically. His son stated years later, it just flipped our lives over. It took several years before it finally died down. Stefan and his family were ridiculed for years after and up until he died. Stefan said he wished that he never said anything in the first place. At the time, he felt it was the right thing to do. He still lived by his moral code taught to him when he was with the Polish army. And that was if something happened, it should be reported. Plus he needed like the medical attention. So it's in his best interest to be honest in order to get the proper treatment. Absolutely. His son was bullied in school due to the incident. In an interview with his son, he remembered the time that all of this had happened. He said he remembered when his dad came home after he had his 
accident at Falcon Lake and was very sick. Stan stated, I recalled seeing him in bed. He didn't look good at all. He looked pale, haggard. What Stan remembered most vividly was the smell in the room. Stan said, when I walked into the bedroom, there was a huge stink in the room, like a real horrible aroma of sulfur and burnt motor. It was all around and it was coming out of his pores. It was bad. You know what the interesting thing about the sulfur is? You kind of hear about that in accounts of like, I don't know, ghosts or like demons and stuff like that. It's almost like if you feel like a presence in the room, it almost it sometimes is accompanied by like a sulfur smell. Yeah, I think the, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say stereotypical, but like the typical like demon responses, the smell of like rotting meat or sulfur, just like an absolute stink. Yeah, I never thought of it this way until now. But what if, what if the UFO is kind of in like, the similar realm of like a ghost like wherever ghosts came from wherever ghosts come from demons come from maybe that's where this ufo come came from well maybe we'll have to look at that in the future that's interesting that's a interesting theory because i think typically people think ufos come from another planet right but what if it comes from another realm or another dimension wherever these uh supposed ghosts come from right yeah I don't know, wild theory, but something to think about. Stan also stated, I was very afraid. My dad had been injured, and I didn't know anything about it. Despite all the ridicule, Stefan never once changed his story. Stan stated, if you asked him what it was that he saw, he would describe it in intimate detail, but he would never say, oh, it was definitely extraterrestrials, because there was no evidence to prove that. I mean, it's still, in theory, it still could be... Uh... Like a Russian uh, military thing, right? Or any military for that matter. Yeah, it's never been proved otherwise. Yeah, like the government might have technology. And we've seen a lot of, uh, I guess, in the news and other, I guess, prominent YouTube slash podcasting figures talking about how it's not so much like Dr. Stephen Greer, for example, his, a lot of his focus is not so much on the fact that it's extraterrestrial life. It's more so on our government having black projects or not our government specifically like American government, for example, running black projects and funneling money into it. That's unaccounted for to make these craft and nobody knows about it. Yeah, could be. I mean, one thing I don't think we ever heard in this entire story, Stefan call them UFOs or aliens or nothing like that. He's, yeah. he's never once alluded to anything of that matter. If anybody thinks he's crazy, it's from their own thinking that they're assuming he's talking about UFOs. I feel like that's an easier explanation to say somebody's crazy versus trying to flip your own reality. Oh, 100%. Stan also said, quote, he might ask, what do you think I saw? But right up until he died, his story never changed one iota. Nothing about it or how he told it, end quote. Stan co-authored a book with Chris Rutkowski, a Canadian science writer and UFO researcher called When They Appeared. From a CBC News article, quote, that's who Mishalak refers to in the title of the book. Those endless visitors and phone calls, the media and the people camping on the lawn, the people who would follow Mishalak to school one day, peppering him with questions. In an interview with Rutkowski, he said, 
The Falcon Lake incident is possibly Canada's best documented UFO case. It even beats Roswell, and Roswell was the alleged flying disc that landed in New Mexico in 1947. Because the United States still doesn't recognize that anything happened in Roswell out of the ordinary. This event is well recognized in Canada. It is so recognized that in 2018, on the 50th anniversary of the Falcon Lake incident, much like the Clarenville episode that we talked about, the Royal Canadian Mint released a $20 silver coin, which was uncirculated, featuring the incident as part of its Canada's Unexplained Phenomena series of coins. The coin glows in the dark with beams on the underside of the alleged craft. The back of the coin illustrates Michelock's claim of falling to the ground from the vent blast while a UFO hovers above him. Only 4,000 coins were made, and they retailed at the time for a price of $129.95. That looks nothing like a coin. Yeah, it's kind of like, a, almost like an acorn shape to it. It looks like uh, what a coin looks like after you put it through one of those roller machines when you go to like a tourist attraction. I'm pretty sure there's one at our uh, old ice cream shop, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, there is. So I'll leave you with this quote from Stefan's son, Stan. If dad hoaxed this, remember, we're talking about a blue-collar industrial mechanic. If he hoaxed it, then he was a freaking genius. Oh, that's an epic quote. What a good son. And that's the story. That was a good story. I like that one. It's really interesting. The fact that it was so heavily documented and there's pictures everywhere. You can see it online. It's so bizarre. And I think the thing that weirded me out the most was that there was no explanation really for why he got sick. Like He was just sick and they're like, ah, it looks like radiation poisoning. And they tested him and it came back negative. And they're like, well, don't know what to tell you. Interesting though, they did find radiation at the site, but not on him. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. But yeah, that radium vein, I guess, was running underneath. Um, that caused some of the radiation, but I don't think into the amount that it would cause somebody to hallucinate, but I don't know. Yeah. Why Why do you think, Jarrett, that this craft appeared in this location? Honestly, I think because it was isolated. Because it was during the daytime, which was really interesting as well. I feel like your stereotypical UFO interaction or whatever you'd like to call it, happens during night under the cover of darkness for the most part. And this was broad daylight. Like, I, I believe in terms of the actual time, it was around 11 o'clock to like 2 o'clock. So 11 a.m. till 2 p.m., somewhere in there. Middle of the day, not raining outside whatsoever. Yeah, keep in mind, like, this guy heard voices coming from the craft. He tried to speak to them, and that's when they shut up. So it's almost like they had an agenda, like they were there to do something. They were do there to do some work. They didn't realize he was there. They got rudely interrupted and they blasted off. I definitely agree with that. So what were they doing? Maybe it's got something to do with that radium vein. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they need it for their craft. Maybe, but they still blasted off without doing whatever they needed to do. So who knows? Maybe they were just on vacation, these uh, aliens or whatever they were. I guess we'll never know. Looks like a nice, nice view from the coin. Well, that's what Stefan described. He said the area was just like absolutely gorgeous. And I guess people today actually go there and visit the site that the alleged interaction or the alleged UFO contact happened. But it's the area around there is pretty much just pure wilderness. Like it's gorgeous. Yeah. And Stefan was there to mine for 
what was it quartz or something quartz and silver maybe quartz and silver is what the craft needs too who knows all right so that's all we're gonna have for you tonight we're gonna wrap things up now so i'd just like to say thank you and good night